Heavenly Father, we have gathered here today and we, we come before you as the King of kings and as the Lord of lords. And I know for all those who are in Christ, we truly do desire to worship you and you alone. And yet even this hour we recognize, Father, that there are idols, there are inordinate desires, there are temptations in our hearts that do not want to submit to you or to your word. We recognize, Father, in this very city, which may equally be where Satan's throne is, we are tempted, we are drawn away, we are allured by the idols of our time. And oftentimes, Lord, we fail. We praise you for this letter that your son, Jesus Christ, wrote to the church at Pergamum so many years ago. It is very applicable to us today, and certainly your true church throughout the world. I ask, Father, that you would cause us to hear well not an historical letter, but a timeless teaching that applies to each and every one of us and certainly to our church as a whole. Father, cause us this morning by your Spirit to worship you and you alone. Strike down every idol that competes for the affections of our heart. Show us Jesus clearly and the sacrifice that he made to bring us in to make us sons and daughters, to make us friends. We want to be faithful, Lord. Faithful sons and daughters, faithful citizens of your kingdom. We want that to be the testimony of this church to this fallen world. And so I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would do that this morning. In our flesh we cannot, but by your Spirit we can become a faithful people. I pray you would do that for our well-being, for the lost in this community, and above all else for your glory. For you are worthy of our complete and total worship. You are worthy. Show us that this morning, I pray. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Pergamum's hard, hard. It was a hard week for me. This letter, if it has its right impact, will shine a brilliant light onto our hearts and our minds and show us those idols that we give homage to that Christ hates. I have a simple prayer, my beloved, that we do not leave here the same as when we came in, but that we realize that we too, many of us, I'll speak for myself, we have idols that need to perish. They need to be put to death so that we can worship Christ alone, for he is worthy. Even in our fallen culture in the West, we have this sense of allegiance of what it means to be faithful to a person or a country or an idea, for better or for worse. During the 2020 presidential campaign, which most of you are 
wildly familiar with. Facebook, the once darling social media platform of the left, they fell out of favor with the Democrats for not doing more to censor what Democrats called right-wing propaganda. Two years later, Facebook is still considered by many Democrats as traitors of the progressive movement. When the Democratic representative from New Jersey, Jeff Van Drew, switched parties and became a Republican in 2020 representing the state of New Jersey, throwing his hat in the ring with Donald Trump, he was called a traitor, a coward, and a man without any morals. Now, my beloved, if allegiance and fidelity are still held to relatively high regard today in a culture as darkened as ours, how much more do you think the creator of the universe expects those made in his image to be faithful to him? How much more grievous is it to God, the perfectly faithful one to his people, how much more grievous is it for God to see mankind put their faith in him and in idols as well. This morning as we hear Jesus' letter to the church in Pergamum, it is my prayer that we will feel the gravity of our infidelity. I want there to be a right weight of conviction this morning upon this church and then find the right relief in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want us to understand the weight of our professing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior on the one hand and then bowing down to idols with the other and how truly horrific and hateful it is to God and should be to us. So as we hear Jesus speak, I want you, I want you to examine your own heart and I want you to ask two simple questions this morning. They will be the two points of the sermon. Number one, do you serve a king or do you serve kings, plural? Do you serve one king or do you serve multiple kings? And question number two, are you at war or are you at peace with the king of all creation? Are you at war or are you at peace? Two questions, king or kings, war or peace. The theme of the sermon is this, peace with God requires allegiance to Jesus Christ. Being at peace with God, your Creator, requires our allegiance to His Son, Jesus Christ. I didn't overwhelm you, did I? I, I pray not. I didn't want to do that. Um, let's work through this together. Let's hear clearly what Jesus was saying to Pergamum, and then let's find the relief in the gospel that Jesus offers us by grace through faith. Point number one, King or Kings. So Jesus, having appeared to the Apostle John on the island of Patmos in his glorified state, which we read about in chapter 1, he now dictates his third letter to the Apostle. He had already dictated a letter to Ephesus when he called them back to their first love. Last week we saw the letter that was written to the church in Smyrna, and that was a, a letter of encouragement for them to continue to persevere in the midst of extreme suffering. In his third letter, Jesus instructs John to write to Pergamum, and he identifies himself to the church as this. Look at verse 12, latter part, as he, speaking of himself, as he who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now you remember that 
from Revelation chapter 1, verse 16, when John was describing Jesus, and he described him as such, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Now we know at that time that a sword was a weapon of judgment. It was a weapon of war. And so Jesus is identifying himself to the church as the one who comes with the double-edged sword of his mouth as judgment and as war unless they do something to change, unless they repent. We know that God's words are both judgment and bring war. At the end of Revelation in chapter 19, we will see that it's the sword of Jesus' mouth, his words that strike down the nations as he makes war with those who continue in rebellion. And we already know from Hebrews chapter 4 that Jesus' words, God's word, is living and active, sharper than what? Any two-edged sword discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, able to judge even dividing marrow and bone. In other words, the Son of Man's words, as revealed in the Bible, this double-edged sword is to judge and make war. And therefore, if we have any wisdom and any wits about us, we do not want to take his word lightly. We do not want to reject it. We do not want to dismiss it. And certainly for the next 45 minutes, you do not want to hear it. We do not want to not hear his word. So Jesus proceeds in customary fashion and he commends the church in Pergamum. Look at verse 13. He commends them for their, for their fidelity, for their faithfulness to him. He said, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name. Now Pergamum, like Smyrna and like Ephesus, they were, it was a thriving metropolis. It was north of Smyrna, about 16 miles inland. And Jesus describes this place. Now, this is Jesus talking. Jesus describes it as Satan's throne room, where Satan's throne is. Now, that cannot be a good thing if the Son of Man is describing your city as where Satan's throne is. Now, Satan, as we know, he was a fallen angel, a very powerful angel who sought to ascend the throne of God. And he was cast out of heaven along with a third of God's angels, and he was cast down to earth, where he has now for millennia, he has attempted to reign here as what? As king. As king. And he has done that by tempting the hearts of fallen men to worship him. Not Christ, but him. Now under the brutal reign of Emperor Domitian, which we believe these letters were written, and his mandatory emperor worship, Pergamum had become a stronghold for Satan. It was literally a breeding ground of idolatrous worship to false gods. It was what we would call an ultra-religious city. Those who lived there worshipped. In fact, Domitian himself called the city the city of the most temples. In the back of the city, it was actually the back of the city was a dome-like shaped hill about a thousand feet high. And the top of that hill was covered with hundreds and hundreds of temples to false gods. There was a temple of the divine Augustus, the first imperial temple in the Roman province of Asia. There was a temple to the goddess of Roma who symbolized the rule and peace of Rome. There was a god and a temple, a temple to the god Asclepius, and Asclepius had the power to heal, a very popular temple at that time. They even had 
They even had a temple to Zeus. Zeus who was the head of the Greek pantheon. In other words, Pergamum was a, not only just a religious city, it was highly syncretistic. You say, well, what is that? Syncretism is to have many gods in which you worship. And so those in Pergamum didn't worship one god, they worshiped many gods. Syncretistic worship, it pleases Satan. It makes Satan very happy because that's one of his greatest weapons. It isn't necessarily to make people not believe in Jesus Christ. It's to cause the church, it's to tempt the church who professes faith in Jesus Christ to worship Jesus and someone or something else, other gods. Syncretistic worship. You see, as God's adversary, anytime, anytime Satan can tempt a man to worship an idol or a false god in addition to the one true living God who is worthy of all glory and honor and praise, Satan is victorious. Satan wins when we submit to idols. But thankfully, Jesus tells us, not all in Pergamum had bowed down to Satan's throne by worshiping these false idols. Look at what he says again in verse 13. He says to the church, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, Yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith. So even though, even though they dwelt in a city described by Jesus Christ as where Satan's throne is, even though they had been tempted to fall down and worship the false idols of their time, they refused to capitulate. They did not participate, many of them, and even when tested, their faith, they held fast to Jesus' name. They proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ and the power of God to save sinners through his blood. They held fast to the name above all names. They held fast to the King of kings, the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. And they even did so when their own lives, their physical lives, hung in the balance. Look at the latter part of verse 13. Jesus says, you were faithful and you held fast to my name. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful servant, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So the city again is where Satan's throne is. Jesus now tells us it's where Satan dwells. And yet he describes Antipas. He calls him my faithful witness. Don't you want Jesus to say that about you? I mean, that's what you want. You want him to say, oh, I know Steve, and I know Brandon, and I know Tim, I know Alyssa. He or she is my faithful witness. Oh, my beloved, there are no greater words that your Savior could say to you than my faithful witness. Antipas refused to capitulate. He would not bow down to the false gods. He would not participate in the imperial cult, which Domitian required, and so he was murdered. He was martyred for his faith, likely before all to see as a public demonstration of what happens to those who do not bow down to Emperor Domitian. Now, according to church history, and this is church history, this is not scripture, so hear it with a big grain of salt, but according to church history, the Roman proconsul summoned Antipas, they brought him before the emperor's court, and they ordered him to declare Kaiser Kyrios, Caesar is Lord. Caesar is God. In fact, that's all he had to do in order to live. Proclaim Caesar is God, take a little bit of incense, sprinkle it, douse it onto the flames, and then he would be able to go free. I mean, after all, 
Some were probably saying to Antipas, everyone was doing it. Everyone was paying homage to Domitian. People from different religions, those who were good Roman citizens, even some Christians were paying their allegiance to Domitian. No big deal, Antipas. Well, according to church history, Antipas refused, and he said this instead. Jesus Christ alone is my Lord and my God, not Caesar, not Domitian, not any other God. And for his refusal, allegedly, he was taken into the public square. He was put into a large brass bowl filled with water, and then he was boiled alive under open flame for all to see. Truly, Antipas was Jesus' faithful witness. The word in the Greek is the word we have in the English for martyr. He was murdered for his faithfulness. And this is what the church in Pergamum was being persecuted for. Their allegiance, their refusal to accommodate to the culture, their faith that Jesus Christ, their belief that Jesus Christ was what? King of kings, Lord of lords, and God of gods, not Domitian, not Augustine, not Roma, but Jesus Christ alone, and so they suffered. Like their brothers and sisters in Smyrna, Jesus has high marks for many in the church in Pergamum. But unlike Smyrna, not all stayed faithful to Jesus Christ as King of Kings. Look at verse 14 with me. Jesus said, but I have a few things against you. Don't you hate it when you get to that? You, just, you want it to be like Smyrna. You want it to be like Philadelphia. Just give us the good, Lord. He said, I have a few things against you. You have some there, some in the church who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So some in the church were not holding fast to the name of Jesus. Some in the church actually capitulated and accommodated to the culture. And we're told here that they accepted the teachings of Balaam. Now most of you, most of you know the story of Balaam from Numbers chapter 22, and you know it because as Balaam was going with the Moabites to put a curse onto the Israelites, his donkey, we know the donkey talks because the angel of the Lord is about to put Balaam to death. Now most of you know that story. What you probably don't know or you don't remember is that three chapters later in Numbers chapter 25, Balaam does something else that's truly horrific. He shows Balak, the king of the Moabites, how to get the Israelites to worship false gods. And he says, it's not going to be by war, but with your women. Balaam went to Balak, the king of Moab, and he said, listen, send in your prostitutes. Send in women to the men of Israel. They will come. They will join themselves with them. Some will marry, and then they will come and they will bow down to the false gods of Moab. And it worked. Numbers chapter 25, listen. Verses 1 through 3. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These women invited the Israelites to the sacrifices of their gods. Now listen. And the people ate and bowed down to their gods. Same thing that we see taking place in Pergamum. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Why? They didn't completely reject Yahweh. They held on to Yahweh, and then they went and they worshipped the Baals of Peor, the gods of Moab, too. So it wasn't by war, but by women, that Balak 
was able to turn the hearts of Israel away from God and to their false gods. What was the result? Well, if you know how Numbers 25 ends, the Lord sent a plague upon the Israelites, killing 24,000 people. 24,000 people for their idolatry, for their whoring with the Moabite gods. So, Balak didn't even have to pick up his sword. All he had to do was get the Israelites to turn away from Yahweh and turn to these false gods, and God would exercise justice. And so he did. Now, Jesus says that some in the church in Pergamum had done the exact same thing. They had not held fast to his name, but instead they had practiced in the worship of the culture. They had gone to the temple sacrifices. They had eaten in the temples. They had even engaged in, Jesus says, sexual morality, sexual sin, and and that probably was attached to to, to sexual prostitution. Even, Jesus adds in verse 15, look with me, so also you have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Now we looked at that in the first letter to the church at Ephesus, and that's very likely the same practices that those of the teachings of Balaam had. Sexual immorality, temple sacrifice, eating food that had been sacrificed to idols in the temple itself. In other words, Pergamum was a compromised church. It was a compromised church. Some had held fast, and others had not. Now these were professing Christians within the church, I want you to listen with all your might. Those who had made a profession of faith, those who had gotten baptized, they were added to the membership. So they were gathering on Sundays just like this, and then Monday through Saturday, they were at other places. They were engaged in temple sacrifice. They were engaged in sexual immorality. They had compromised their allegiance to Jesus Christ alone as king of kings, and they had bowed down to the throne of Satan by worshiping idols. You see, Satan doesn't care what idol you worship, as long as you worship an idol. Because in worshiping an idol, you take glory away from God and you give it to someone or something that is not God. And Satan rejoices. And some had done that. Some certainly had bowed down to Emperor Domitian and the imperial cult. You see, Domitian, unlike previous emperors, he truly believed, he truly believed that he was a god. He required those who came into his presence to address him as my Lord and my God. In fact, he took his position as a God-man so seriously that everything in the empire, literally everything in the empire revolved around the worship of Domitian. Everything centered around it. Politics, religion, economics, family structure, community, allegiance, faith, focused on him as God. So as a professing Christian in Pergamum, you really only had you really only had three choices if you were a professing believer in the city at that time. Your, your first choice would be to quit. And, and many did. And, and that makes sense, my beloved. If if you enter into the church of Jesus Christ and you make a profession and you get baptized, but it's not for the sake of the gospel, it's not out of your love for God and redeeming you from the depth of your sin and taking you out of the darkness and into the light of Christ, then when persecution comes, you're certainly going to leave. I mean, if you're here because you want to find a spouse, or you're here because you think this would be a great place to raise my children in the midst of this culture, I can get a sense of morality and value here, 
Or if you, if you are part of a church because you think it's a place that you can, you know, you feel guilty, so you go to church and you feel better, and you, you engage in that religious activity, then when persecution comes, I mean, when there's a threat of your limbs being torn from your body, or, or you being burned alive, or boiled alive, or your children, as then, your children being sacrificed to lions, well, you're not going to stay in the church. You're going to, you're going to flee if you're not there because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's option number one. A Christian living in Pergamon also had a second option. They could hold fast to Jesus. I mean, that was what he was praising them for. They could believe that the God of the Bible is the one true living God and that his son, Jesus Christ, is the Savior. They could put their, their love and their hope and their faith in God, a love that exceeded even their own life, and be willing, like Antipas was, to die for their faith. That's option number two. But there's a third option. You say, well, what? If you're either going to stay the course or you're going to flee. What other option is there besides faithfulness or flight? The third option is the problem in Pergamum, and I would say the problem in many churches throughout the world today. Some in Pergamum chose, these are professing Christians, to claim Christ they were baptized, they joined the church, and simultaneously, they willfully compromised on the word of God. They, they remained professing Christians and bowed down to the idols of their cultural moment. Those idols specifically that were at odds with the church, sexual immorality, sacrifice to these false gods, the emperor worship, imperial cult, and Domitian, and they very likely would have compromised on the word when it came to issues of their own flesh, things they wanted to do that the word said, thou shalt not do. Now, I would argue that it's easy. It, may, it might be easy for us to sit here in 2022 and just shake our heads and think, come on. They were engaged in sexual immorality. They might have been participating in temple prostitution. They were walking into temples and they were sacrificing food and eating food to these false gods. They were ascending that thousand-foot hill at the back of the city. This is unbelievable. How could they call themselves Christians? And we might shake our heads at them and say, shame, shame. And then we pause because we know that we do the exact same thing. Simply because, my beloved, our idols are less conspicuous because we don't march down the street necessarily and enter an actual temple that's named to an actual god and sacrifice an animal to it does not mean that our idolatry is any less violent or hateful to the living God. They were succumbing to the driving forces of their cultural moment. They were succumbing to sexual morality and to temple feast and certainly fidelity to the emperor. But think of how easily the church today, especially in the West, has been lured in by the culture Think of how the church today, the professing church today, has been drawn in by the culture and we now worship in open cultural idols of our day. You have obvious capitulations, obvious accommodations, major denominations. Listen, once orthodox in the faith, pastors and theologians and books we used to read from old and these churches no longer represent those teachings are those men submitting to cultural idols today like the LGBTQ plus movement, critical race theory, social justice, abortion, euthanasia, divorce, 
gender fluidity. I mean, when you drive down the street and you see a rainbow flag hanging from a church of Jesus Christ, you know there's an issue. So we see obvious capitulation, obvious accommodation. But even within denominations, listen closely, and churches which have not caved to the progressive agenda, even within churches, solid evangelical, gospel preaching, Bible teaching churches, I believe that we have far more subtle and I would say now accepted idols in the context of the church. Certainly in the Western church. You say, well, what would those be? I'll just give you a few and you can fill in the rest for yourself. I would say the Western church idolizes comfort and leisure over sacrifice and service. We encourage it. We model it. And we teach it. Be comfortable. Be entertained at the expense of sacrifice and service. I would say the Western church condones a form of sexual immorality for the sake of getting to know someone that you might marry instead of pursuing sexual purity in the context of, let's say, Romans or 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Hidden and subtle idol in the church, entertainment over worship. Entertainment over worship. The sovereignty of the individual. My right, my faith over the collective good of the church. Certainly possessions over people today. Idol after idol after idol, specifically condemned by the word of God, and yet fully embraced and rarely criticized in the Western church. We don't criticize because we know if we do, people will leave. You don't want to talk about leisure. You don't want to talk about comfort. You don't want to even talk about sexual purity in the context of the church because no one will come back. We understand that. I would say here in Silicon Valley, I wanted to highlight one that seems to have come up a lot over the past decade now. It's how Christians whore themselves to their work. Now, now we know that work is good. God commands us to work. God commands us to support ourselves and our family and those who are in need. But I think that there is a, a balance that we've lost, specifically in the Bay Area. And if you've traveled to other places in the country of the world, there's a pace here that is contrary to the Holy Spirit. There's a movement here of do and work and do not stop. And so, how many employer, employees do anything their employers ask? We work in ordinary hours. If they say go here, we go. If they say stay here, we stay. We sacrifice oftentimes, and this is not a hypothetical. We've seen it in our church over the last couple decades. Marriages have been sacrificed. Children have been sacrificed. For the sake of what? For the sake of a company. For the sake of a business. The company says pick up your family and move to another city or move to another state. Away from your parents. Away from your church. Simply because you're told to. We've forgotten about the importance of caring for our parents. We've forgotten about the importance of church family. The fact that God gives you gifts and talents and then places you into a church just like this in a Romans Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 12 sense where you are to stay and work and serve. We've forgotten about seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then him providing what? Our work. All these things God said, I will give unto you. Seek me first. Seek my kingdom first. We've forgotten about covenant membership 
and the fact that God is sovereign in the placement of his people in local bodies. My beloved, idolatry may manifest itself differently today than it did in the church in Pergamum, but all idols are born from the same unfaithful, divided heart, and it is hateful to God. It's hateful to God. So Jesus rebukes them for not holding to the truth of who they really are. His church, his people called what? To live a holy life, to live holy lives as a holy church in the midst of Satan's city. Not capitulate to Satan's schemes. So they had joined in the culture and made all necessary accommodations to fit in. And that was the sin, my beloved. You want to talk about an evil sin? The sin of accommodation is an evil, hateful sin. It's giving in to the culture rather than what? Rather than restoring the culture through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's capitulating. It's saying, I believe in Jesus and I'm going to hold on to these false gods too. My beloved, when we accommodate to the culture, when we look and we act and we speak like everyone else, there is no gospel witness There is no power to testify. What do we testify to? We have nothing to say. We have nothing to show when we compromise and accommodate and worship Jesus Christ and the idols of our day. Syncretistic worship, living for Jesus and other gods, has no power to change anyone, including yourself. It has no power to change anyone, including you. So their accommodation compelled Jesus to what? He said, repent and turn. Or what? He said, I'm going to come and I'm going to judge you. I'm going to make war. These are are really hard sayings from our Lord. He, He hates the fact that they are bowing down and giving honor and glory to things that, one, are not real, and two, they're not his father. Right? Jesus is jealous for the honor of his father. And he says, I will not have it, Pergamum. You repent or I'm going to come, and he doesn't say I'm going to take away your lampstand as he did with Ephesus. He says, I'm going to come, I'm going to judge you, I'm going to make war with you. This is the creator of the universe declaring war upon his people. Well, that doesn't cause us to stop and pause and think and maybe confess. I, I don't know what would, my beloved. So first we see the church in Pergamum struggling. They're struggling. Some are worshiping the king of kings alone, and others are worshiping Jesus and bowing down at the throne of Satan. Now imagine many there who had accommodated their faith. They probably rationalized it. They probably had enough theology to say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. The psalmist said, Psalm 145, verse 8, that God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. I need not be that concerned. True. And yet, above that, first and foremost, God is jealous for his own glory. He will not. Isaiah 42 verse 8. God said, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Jealous for his glory. Oh, he is gracious, and he is merciful, and he is slow to anger, and he is abounding in steadfast love. Praise God. Praise God. But above that, his glory, his honor is first. And so he hates our idolatry. He hates what it does to us. He hates what it does to this world. And he hates that it denies him the glory he is rightfully due, for he is God. He is God. 
which means, my beloved, we will either worship God alone and be at peace with God, or we'll worship God and idols and be at war. I have, I have one more point. Are, are you still with me? All right. Don't look so tired. War and peace. Jesus calls them to peace. Did you notice that? Look at verse 16. Verse 16, Jesus says, therefore, repent. Therefore, in light of everything I just said, the fact that you, some of you are, are accommodating people in your church that are worshiping idols, they're engaged in sexual morality of a, of a wicked kind, they're, they're going to the temples and they're sacrificing food and they're eating that food. He said, in light of all this, therefore, repent. If not, Jesus said, I will come to you soon, as in, in history, in time, and war against them with the sword of my mouth. So Pergamum is put on notice. The church is put on notice to call all those in their midst to repentance. And I believe the church in part was put on notice too because they were allowing those in their midst, covenant brothers and sisters, to engage in idolatry. They allowed it. They didn't do anything about it. They didn't engage in Matthew 18 as loving one another. And certainly Jesus is causing, call, calling those who were whoring themselves within the church by worshiping these other gods to repent immediately. Immediate turning. They were to confess that their hearts were divided. They were to confess that their loves were mixed. That it wasn't Jesus Christ alone. It was Jesus and other gods. They were to seek forgiveness for their syncretistic worship. Their Jesus plus other gods faith. And they were to turn immediately away from every idol, away from every temple, away from every inordinate desire and turn back to the one true living God immediately. There was a time emphasis on this. When he said, I'm going to come to you soon, he meant soon as in temporally, not at the end of time. Jesus said, if not, look at verse 16 again, I will come to you soon and war against them. War against who? Those who continue to bow down to idols. I will war against them with the sword of my mouth. Now that's the image of that that we had in Revelation chapter 1 and even the, the sound of it is a bit odd when he says he'll war with the sword of his mouth. And of course we know that to be his word. It's what God speaks. In Matthew chapter 4, early in Jesus' ministry, in fact right after he was baptized, most of you know this story well, King Jesus was taken into the desert and he was tempted by King Satan. It was a duel of two kings. Jesus was tempted to compromise on his trust in God the Father to protect and to provide for all of his needs. Matthew chapter 4 verse 2 and following writes, listen, and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus, we're told, was hungry. Remember, he's truly man. He's really, really hungry. Verse 3, and the tempter, that Satan, came and he said to him, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. In other words, Satan tempts him to not keep his faith and trust in God alone. Satan says, listen, if you are really the Son of God, then use your power to overcome your hunger. Forget about your trust in God. Forget about his word. Listen to me. Take matters into your own hands and what? And eat. And eat. Jesus answered him, verse four, 
It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from what? The mouth of God, the sword of God. So Jesus was being tempted to participate in syncretistic worship. Satan was saying, worship God the Father, listen to his word, but I also want you to listen to me, bow down to me, turn those, turn those rocks, turn those stones into bread that you might overcome your hunger. Rely upon yourself if you are the Son of God. But Jesus understood what was at stake, and he chose the word of God because he knows the word of God is life. He chose that. He chose to trust in God's life-giving word God's promise to protect and provide for him regardless of his circumstances. In fact, he trusted God's word so much that just like Antipas, he gave his life, what? As a faithful witness upon the cross so that we, sinners saved by grace, could enjoy the protection and provision of God forever. God's words are words of life. From his mouth, That double-edged sword reveals to us that He is the one true living God. God's Word reveals that He is deserving of all glory and all honor and all praise by all creation forever and ever. From His mouth, He has made known to us that we are what? We are sinful and rebellious through and through. That we are idolaters. That we do not worship God alone. That we worship idols And then he calls us, his word, the sword calls us to repent and put our faith in Jesus Christ alone. From his mouth, he reveals the Son of God paying our debt on the cross. His body, his blood, sufficient to pay for our sins that we might be forgiven and granted life. From his mouth, he has made known to us that Jesus, listen, Jesus now reigns. He's not on the cross King is kings, Lord of lords, Jesus now reigns. And from his mouth, God has promised that if you worship and serve him alone, listen, he will protect and he will provide for you. That's his promise. God says, you come to me, you serve me, you worship me, and I will protect and I will provide for you now and forever. Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10, God said, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, dismayed, for I am your God. And then he says, and I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. Perfect protection from those who submit to God alone. And perfect provision, Matthew chapter 6. Jesus said, you know this well. Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. And then he says, oh, you of little faith, The Gentiles seek after all these things, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. They'll be given to you. Put your faith and trust in God alone, and he'll take care of all those things that you always worry about. Perfect provision for all those who remain faithful to the end. This is God's word to his people. He says, I will protect you perfectly. I will provide for you perfectly. But you must put your faith in me alone. Not me and idols. Not me and false gods. Those in Pergamum, by engaging in temple worship and sexual immorality, by eating food sacrificed to idol, revealed that they did not really believe the word of God. They really didn't trust that God would protect and provide for them. Their actions gave them away. 
They did not believe, so they turned for protection to Emperor Domitian. They said to the emperor, Lord and God, so they could have security in the city. They did not believe that God would provide for them, so they turned to the God of Asclepius to heal them when they were sick, to the God of Roma for peace, to the God of Zeus to smite their enemies, to the God of Eros when they were sexually tempted. They did not trust what God has said, that he would protect and provide for his people if his people alone worshipped him. In other words, they turn to the false words of lying gods who are not real, just like we do today. The same is true, my beloved, if we strive. You can't do this, but if you try to hold Jesus in one hand and some of your idols in the other, you lose everything. You can't hold You can't hold God in your hand. God must hold you. So if we pursue Jesus Christ on Sundays because we're Christians, but Monday through Saturday we pursue money, success, power, entertainment, sex, then we have no protection and we have no provision from the living God. Every idol we turn to, my beloved, is an attempt to be protected or provided for. Everyone. Every time we sin, we are saying that God is not sufficient, that God will not protect, that God will not provide for me. Jesus says, continue in that vein. Hold, try to hold me and try to hold an idol. And Jesus says, I'm going to come and make war with the sword of my mouth. In other words, he will judge us by his own word. By his own word, he will say, you refused to be protected and you refused to be provided by my heavenly Father. I called you in by the gospel of grace. I called you to repentance and faith. But by your own actions, you refused to believe. And he says, therefore, I will make war against you. Now, we had a chance to sing a lyric that I think reveals why this is so hard. It's a risky endeavor, is it not, to put all your eggs in one basket? If you're listening closely, you're hearing Jesus say to you and to me and to all mankind that we are to trust in God and God alone to protect and provide for all of our needs now and forever. That's a, that's a high calling. That's a lot of trust. It requires a lot of faith. Some of you said, well, you know, my, my financial counselor tells me I should diversify my portfolio. Shouldn't I do the same in my faith? Shouldn't I put my trust in the God of the Bible and, and my trust in some of these idols and my trust in a little bit in myself? Shouldn't I spread it around a bit? What if I give up my idols and God fails to fulfill his promises? What if I sacrifice in this life only to end up with nothing in the next. What if I do what Antipas did and I hold fast to Jesus' name and I lose my life as a result only to find out that I will hunger and thirst for all eternity? Look at verse 17. Jesus said, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. says that in every single letter. 
Spirit is cooperating his words. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and with a new name, a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So all those, Jesus, all those who remain faithful, all those who do not participate in the synchristic worship, the divided worship, Jesus plus other gods, all those who say no to their lying words and yes to every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, Jesus says, I promise eternal protection and eternal provision will be yours now and forever. Jesus I promise that. And then he gives us two examples of that promise. The first one, he says, I'm going to give you some of the hidden manna. Hidden manna. So what is that? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> In the Old Testament, we know that manna was used by God during the 40 years that the Israelites were in the desert, it was used to nourish them, to provide for them. In fact, so significant was manna in symbolizing God's provision for his people that they took a pot, remember they took a pot of manna and they put it in the Ark of the Covenant, and they put that in the holiest of holies so that all generations remember that God provides for his people. In the New Testament, we know that Jesus when he was speaking to the crowds in John chapter 6, he identifies himself as what? As the true manna. He said this to the crowds in John 6. Listen. He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, that's the manna, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven, speaking of himself. Jesus said, They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. They said, We want this bread. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall what? Shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So the hidden manna, Jesus promises to all who conquer, in the end, it is eternal life. It is Jesus saying, remain faithful. Don't bow down to the false idols. And I will grant you access where? Into the holiest of holies. I'll bring you in to where the Ark of the Covenant is, to the hidden manna in the pot. Remain faithful to the end, and you will be seated at the wedding feast of the Lamb where they will have that manna on the table to eat. Jesus says, remain steadfast in my name to the end, and you will have eternal life. And that's not simply living forever. Eternal life is the complete wholeness. No hunger no thirst, no chasing after all those foolish idols that only Christ can fill. It is having Christ and being satisfied forever. My beloved, there is no greater provision of mind, body, or soul than Jesus himself. Do you know that? He is that hidden manna. Whoever goes to Christ, whoever stays in Christ, will never hunger and never thirst again. Perfect provision for all eternity. Well, that's good news, my beloved. For those of you who are afraid to come to God and say, what if he doesn't provide? Jesus says, I am that provision. I am that food. I am that drink. But he also provides perfect protection. Did you notice this? He said, no, I didn't because it doesn't make any sense. Latter part of verse 17. I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. You say, what, what does that mean? Remember, we're in Revelation. There's symbolic language that's a little bit challenging. This is definitely challenging. 
The precise meaning of the white stone, I would argue, is truly uncertain. I read 10 commentaries, 11 commentaries, and almost every single one had a different idea for the white stone. I thought, hmm, okay, so we're really not sure. Some believe that it was a gemstone or a jewel, or a, a, some argued it was actually a magical stone. Interesting. Um, at that time, white stones were given to those who were victorious in games, like Olympic games, and the white stone would grant you access into the victor's banquet to go party and eat and dance and drink. Interesting. White stones were also given to those who were acquitted in a court of law that were tried and found not guilty. You think, well, a lot of those work. They do work. Because I don't know the exact meaning, but we know the general meaning, at that time, white stones were used as a token of favor or success given to someone, usually by another who's in power. That we know, regardless of how you interpret it specifically. So here, in the context of our passage, those who remain faithful to the end, those who conquer to the end, God says, I'm going to give you a white stone which signifies my approval, my favor upon you. In other words, you are now welcomed in. You're welcomed into the wedding feast of the Lamb. You've been victorious in Christ, so you are now part of my gathering. You've been given that white stone of acquittal. You are no longer guilty. You are set free. But it also comes, the name, the stone comes with a name on it, a new name that only the recipient, the one who receives it, will recognize. Now some argue that that name is the believer's name, that it's put upon the stone, their new name in Christ. I, 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 part of me wants to think that because I like that idea of my name being upon that white stone, but I don't think that's it. I think it's Jesus' name. And I think this for several reasons, one of which, in, in the next chapter when we get to Philadelphia, Jesus says this, he said to the one who conquers, so same reward, I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, and my own new name. Jesus' new name, not the believer's new name. In other words, the white stone would not simply be symbolic of God's favor and approval, having Jesus' name on it reveals its origin and the name of the giver as a pledge to what? To perpetual, eternal friendship. With Jesus' name on that, you have access to God, not because of you, but because of him. With Jesus' name upon that stone, you are now a friend of God forever and ever. Remember, this, this name was cast out of the presence of God so that you could be brought in to the presence of God. This name, Jesus Christ, written upon your rock, he thirsted upon that cross so that you could eat and be filled forever. He was found guilty so you could be acquitted. He went to war with God so that you could have peace with God. In other words, this, the rock with the name means no more warring with the sword of Jesus' mouth. No more judgment, no more condemnation, but only and forever peace with God. You want the white stone with Jesus' name written on it. You want that handed to you, my beloved. Perfect protection. Perfect provision, perfect protection for all those who what? Who remain faithful to God and God alone. Now that's perfect protection, not only from 
the schemes of Satan as we live in a culture that certainly we would say that Satan lives here too, but is protection from the great white throne judgment when God judges the living and the dead at the end of time. It is perfect protection. My beloved, you were made and you were redeemed to serve one king, one God, not many. You were created to be at peace with God, not at war. So I want to exhort you to stop chasing after and submitting to all those other kings and all those other idols that cannot protect you and cannot provide for you and can never, ever give you peace. Stop. Stop. Put down your weapons today before Jesus takes up his and engages you in war. I want to exhort you to enjoy the peace and the protection and the provision that comes when we worship God and God alone and then worship and serve Him. He, my beloved, is worthy. He is worthy and only He can satisfy. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this warning. And we thank you for the provision of Jesus Christ. I ask, Lord, that we would respond to this warning correctly. That we would seek, even before we leave this place, to identify, confess, and turn from every idol, every inordinate desire, everything that is hateful to you, that we would turn from it and turn to Christ and Christ alone. I pray, Lord, that you would show us that through the sacrifice of your Son that we, in fact, have been given that white stone, that we have been welcomed in. The name of Jesus Christ, his new name, has been written on it. I ask you would do this mighty work in us, Father. Let these words of your Son to Pergamum not fall upon deaf ears for us. Cause each of us to be rightly convicted over those areas in our life that we need to turn from and then cause us to turn today that you might bring refreshing and bring power to this body. In Christ's name, amen.